0: listening to the Midtown Church podcast a ministry that exists to make Jesus known Good morning everybody we're continuing on in our series honest to god a summer prayer series and so please take your bibles out turn with me to Luke chapter 18 we're looking at verses One to eight today, one of my favorite, favorite texts in all of the Gospels, a a parable of Jesus. Let's read it together. I'll press pause and pray, and then we'll start walking through it. Verse one, Luke 18, now Jesus, he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. There was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let's pray together. Uh, Father, this is your word given to us, breathed out by the Spirit of God, infallible, inerrant, authoritative, um, sweet and beautiful, and powerful enough to thoroughly equip us, teach us, change us, edify us. So we come humbly to it today and ask that your Spirit, by way of the Word that He inspired would be well received, that we would have ears to hear. Please shine into dark places, and may we be people on the other side who respond in ways that you call us to respond to today, for the glory of your name. And I pray for these things in Jesus, your name, amen. Uh, When I was in grade 12, a thousand years ago, when I was in grade 12, I took a geometry class. Um, Geometry was the class non-math guys took in grade 12, you know what I mean? All the rugby guys took geometry. Uh, Big textbook, uh, hated the textbook. Lots of numbers and shapes and and lessons in it. Didn't like it at all. But there was one thing I actually didn't mind about it. In fact, I liked it a lot. And that was the answers were in the back. Love that. So if you were struggling with with something, you could go to the back for help and uh, kind of move along uh, in, in the lesson plan and so on and so forth. Love that. And, and that's what I love about this parable. Because this parable actually gives us the answer, the purpose for it, but it doesn't give us the answer on the back end. It gives us the answer in the very first verse. Look at it one more time. Now Jesus told them a, a parable on the need for them to pray always and, and not give up. That's the purpose of this parable. And I bring this up that we're given this answer on the front end, because that's not always the case with parables. Parables were um, a teaching genre that Jesus often used to tell earthly stories packed full of heavenly and spiritual and kingdom, kingdom meaning. They're packed full of it. But the problem with them is that they're not always easy to understand. And we always don't get the answer on the front or the back end when they're given, in fact, On occasion, the disciples who walked closely with Jesus had to ask Jesus, what are you talking about? Tell us what the parable means. And in part, just so you know, that's one of the roles that the parables served. The parables were given by Jesus to weed people out. He had big crowds following him. He taught often in parables to weed out those people who weren't really with him, in fact, opposed him. Because parables call us to ask questions and dig deep and reflect and things like that. And not everyone was willing to do that. Matthew actually records Jesus saying this about parables. You can read this behind me. Jesus says, that is why I speak to them in parables, those who are resisting me, because looking they do not see and hearing they do not listen or understand. Why? Because they didn't want to. Parables also brought shock value. In our culture, some of that shock has worn off, but they shock people all the time when they listen to Jesus give them, and they were meant to. They were meant to shock the listener because the ministry of God, by way of Jesus, is meant to shock us. Let me explain why it was so shocking then and why it's not as shocking today. Um, A little history lesson. Uh, In the time of Christ, in first century Middle Eastern culture, it was a culture based on on shame. It was a shame-based culture and a a community-driven culture. Ours in the 21st century Western world is a guilt-based culture and very, very self-centered, individual-centric. And so today when we hear the parable of the prodigal, probably the most well-known of all the parables, we read and we hear that parable through the eyes of the lost son. But in the time of Jesus, that parable isn't meant to be about the son alone. We know that, but not even first and foremost. It's it's not wrong listening to that parable through the eyes of the lost son, but most of all, that's a parable that's meant to paint a picture of of the father who, who, despite the shame, great shame that the son brought to him, What does Jesus tell us about the father? He ran to him. He kissed him. He threw a party for him. Shocking at that time. In a parable that follows immediately after our text in Luke 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, when Jesus says there that the tax collector went home justified... And not the Pharisee who fasts twice a week and gives a tenth of everything he has and and lives a life of piousness. Shocking. And the Samaritan of all people proved to be the neighbor and not the priest and not the Levite. Are you kidding me? At that time, shocking. And that's the point. Because the grace and the sweetness and the radicalness of God towards us through his son Jesus is meant to shock us. This parable in Luke 18 is meant to shock us too. But what it isn't is hard to figure out because as I've said, as we've already pointed out, the purpose for it is given on the front end. This parable is meant to encourage us to pray always and not give up. But why was it given? Well, the answer, obviously, is because it is tempting to give up. It's, it's tempting not to not only pray always, but to give up, to give up on praying. That's why it's given. Uh, two weeks ago, when we kicked off this series, I, I gave us, offered seven causes for prayerlessness. If you were here, you may remember that, self-reliance, apathy, guilt, anger at God, faithlessness. And because we just don't know how to pray, busyness as well. Let me add a couple of more that this parable hints at if you like taking taking notes. Here's the first, unanswered prayer. Unanswered prayer is a cause, another cause for prayerlessness. To use the language of this parable, we, we've pester, pestered God again and again and again and still nothing. And this is for praying in some of us in our practice of prayer for some very big things. For friends and family to come to Jesus, things like that. For friends or family to be healed from disease, for friends or family to deepen in their relationship with Jesus. I've known singles who have been praying for years and years and years to find a spouse. I've known parents, not parents, but couples have been praying years and years to have a baby, and still nothing, it seems. Does that resonate with you at all? And so what happens is we, we stop praying. So unanswered prayer is another cause for prayerlessness. A second cause that this parable hints at is is because we view God as being like the judge in this parable. To put it another way, image of God problems cause us not to pray. Or to bring it even closer to home Father issues or parental issues cause us not to pray. Jesus calls us to pray in the Lord's Prayer to our Father in heaven, and for some, more than we probably think, this creates issues and for all sorts of reasons. Some of you may know the name James Houston. Uh, James Houston was one of the founders along with J.I. Packer of Regent College. He's written many, many, many books on the spiritual disciplines. He's in his 90s now. He's still writing Lives in Kits and Kits in a High Rise there. Last year, I had a chance to meet with him several times. When we first met in his, in his apartment, he began by asking about my upbringing. What's my relationship with my parents like? How do I view them? How do you think they see you? I thought it was a waste of time, to be honest with you. I wanted to talk about something else, but he kept on pressing in on me, saying that until I came to a place where I understood that relationship, grasped the nuance of it, how it affected me, it would bleed into how I relate with my Heavenly Father. I was skeptical, but I no longer am. He brought up a hero of mine in the faith. You would know his name if I told it to you. He's an author of many books, a seminary prof. He pastored in a couple prominent churches both here and and in other places too. I've I've spent time with him. He's meant a lot to me. He's a rock star in, in the Christian world. But Dr. Houston said of him, however, that he had never dealt with the fact that his dad wanted him to be a scientist and not a pastor. And And he's lived his whole life feeling like he's let his father down in spite of the success that he's had. And that feeling towards his father is something even to this age and day he's fought with his heavenly father too. This affected this. But I don't think he's alone. I think this is true for many of us. Some of us were raised by parents who gave us everything we asked for. Too scared to say no. If you don't think that will affect your prayer life, dig a little deeper. Others were raised by parents who only showed exasperation when we came to them. They rolled their eyes. They groaned at every request. Some were absent. Some were abusive. Some were critical. Some were overly demanding, expecting perfection from you. Or on the flip side, overly protective, doting parents, fearful parents, parents who found their identity in you. That's a tough burden to carry. Some of us were raised by parents who pushed us hard to be self-sufficient and only rewarded us when we did well and always punished us when we didn't. In other words, grace was always earned and never freely given. For some, discipline was never a thing. Discipline was seen as unloving. So when you hear about the father disciplining those he loves, it's problematic for you. I could go on. My point is our experiences on earth, good, bad, or otherwise, especially those in familial relationships that we have, affect us. And they affect how we view our father in heaven, in our relationship with Him, and can cause us to not pray, or at the very least affect our expectations of prayer. Before addressing how we fight against the temptation to not pray, let's let's unpack the parable itself, okay? So put your beautiful eyes back in the text, The first thing that we need to see in these eight verses is the huge contrast between the two players in it. There are two players on the front end. The first is a judge. A judge who, Jesus says in verse 2, who didn't fear God or respect people, meaning he's not a nice judge. Jesus also says later that he's an unjust judge. But it's good to be a judge though, isn't it? It's good to be a judge, even... Then and today, I mean, judges, when they walk into a courtroom, everybody is told to rise. Here comes the judge, right? Judges are called your honor. Judges wear robes, and they have gavels, and they say overruled, and they make verdicts. That's the judge. It's good to be a judge. Even an unjust judge, it's good to be a judge. Good gig. Widows, that's the second player widows, it's hard to be a widow today, let alone alone then. Having lost a spouse, most likely later in life, no longer financially liquid, perhaps as you once were, maybe your kids are living far away, it's hard to be a widow, hard to be a widower. At the time of Jesus, when women were viewed as second-class citizens with no welfare state to speak of, multiply that difficulty exponentially. There's a reason why the Bible from beginning to end calls God's people to take care of the widow and the orphan because no one else would. God has a very, very big soft spot in His heart towards widows. But it doesn't mean they didn't have great difficulty. Women weren't allowed at the time in courtrooms by themselves. You had to have a man stand with you, a husband, for example. This woman had none of that. And so if we understand, historically speaking, what it was like to be a widow at the time of Christ, more than likely she was destitute and poor. She had no mediation that Jesus speaks of here and was calling on an unjust judge who didn't want to help. I mean, it's an impossible t- position to be in. And yet, here's what's great about this widow. You got to love her shit spa, right? I mean, she's fantastic. I mean, it tells us that she keeps on going back. Verse 3, kept, kept coming to the judge, going back to the judge saying, give me justice against my adversary. Lock that request away. It is key to understanding this parable. Give me justice, judge, against my adversary. But at first, the judge, because he's hard-hearted, unjust and no respecter of man, let alone a widow, is unwilling to do anything until finally he says in verse 5, I'll give her justice so she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. What a guy. In other words, he didn't help her because he was merciful and compassionate. He just didn't want to be nagged anymore. So I'll give you a yes. I'll take care of things. Just leave me alone. That's the first... Boy, I almost tripped. That's the first part of this parable. Full transparency. When I came across this parable in my late teens for the first time, I hated it. My thought was, if, if this is how I'm to view prayer… That prayer is me pestering God and the only reason that he answers me eventually is because I've annoyed him? I mean, I don't want to be an annoyance, a pest. Then why pray? But is that the image this parable is meant to convey? The answer is no, but a little bit yes. A little bit yes, because at times prayer can seem like this, can't it? Like all we're doing is pestering a God who has no time for us, and that's why it's tempting to give up, so we give up. So yes in that way, but no. And no, most of all, because of what Jesus says next. What Jesus says next is he introduces two new characters or players in the parable. The first is also a judge, but a judge with a capital J, God himself. He is meant to be a contrast to the first judge, where the first judge was unjust, no respecter of people, godless, Well, the second judge, God, is God, and he's a lover of people, and he is altogether just. That's the first player. Contrast against the first judge. Second player, first judge. The other player that Jesus introduces is the elect. The elect is to contrast with the widow. I want to be very clear. We're not the widow in this story. We're God's chosen ones in this story if you are in Christ. That's us, the elect. Remember our study in the book of Ephesians? Wasn't that long ago? Remember chapter 1 where God's called, chosen, adopted, freed, redeemed, loved children? That's us. And it's... And it's here where we feel the full impact of this parable and what I want us to all see today. What Jesus is saying is that if an evil, unjust, godless, earthly judge will give justice to someone who is considered the lowest of the classes at the time, then how much more will a loving, compassionate, kind, merciful, just God, come to the help of his children. That's the purpose of this this parable. Jesus didn't say that God's people are like this widow. In fact, he says just the opposite. And therefore, we should be encouraged to pray. Jesus is working from the lesser to the greater To borrow from Warren Wearsby, an oldie but a goldie, he writes, and you can see this on the screen, if a poor widow got what she deserved from a selfish judge, how much more will God's children receive what is right from a loving heavenly father? Such a sweet parable. And I think we get this. We get it in earthly ways. Um, Some of you have my cell number. Not always. If you do have it, please don't share it. I have some of yours as well. If you know me and send me a text or fire off a phone call, there's a chance I will respond eventually, perhaps. If I recognize the number at the very least. If my wife or my kids text me, phone me, there's a good chance that I will respond swiftly and not delay. That's this parable. That's this parable. And that's why we should never give up praying. Paul says something similar to this in Romans 8. Again, you can read it behind me when asking, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything Are you hearing this? Is this word finding good soil this morning? Are you hearing this? God is not an evil judge. He's a loving Heavenly Father who we don't have to pester, but we're invited to draw close to. Our Heavenly Father is ready to take our call. Never busy. Never interrupted. No call goes to voicemail. He's ready to pick up. Always, and Jesus says, look at it again in verse 7 and 8, he says, He will not delay, and He will swiftly grant our requests. He won't delay, He'll swiftly grant our requests. How can Jesus say that? Because on the front end, didn't I say, we've been praying for some things for decades. So Jesus, what are you talking about, man? I mean, what's the, what's the title of this parable? The parable of the persistent widow. Why do we need persistence if God doesn't delay? Why do we need to pray night and day if God is swift to answer our, our asks? Because that's, that's what's bothersome, right? I mean, why would we need persistence if all of that was ours? Why would there be a temptation not to pray? Good questions. So let me see if I can answer with three encouragements and then we'll respond. Here's the first God's delay, quote unquote, never means inactivity. Meaning, God is prompt in answering our prayers, but not, only, not always in the time and the way we think. Let me explain this by taking you back to the Old Testament. One of my favorite books in the Old Testament, Minor Prophet Habakkuk or Habakkuk, depends on how you learn to say his name. The, the book of Habakkuk starts with a prayer, second verse. This is the prayer, and it's a big bad boy prayer. Habakkuk prays, How long, Lord? Must I call for help and you do not listen or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? That resonate with anybody? How long, God? How long do I need to cry out? What was Habakkuk's issue? Habakkuk's issue was the people of God, Israel, his people, God's people, weren't living according to the way God had called them to live. Violence that he talks about was their violence. They're living evil lives, very inconsistent lives, and so he prays out. His problem was, God, this is making you look bad. You're not doing anything. These are your children, and they're just living how they want. You ever been to a house for dinner, perhaps? Kids are there, parents are there, kids are doing any and everything they want, and you drive home, what do you think? What's with the parents, man? Like the the kids are doing everything. Why didn't the parents like slam down and you know provide some discipline, correction? Like it bothered. that's Habakkuk's issue. God, this is making you look bad. Why don't you do something? How long are you gonna wait? God responds. He answers Habakkuk and he says, just a couple of verses later, I'll paraphrase him, I am doing something. Habakkuk, if I told you, you wouldn't even believe it. What I'm doing, Habakkuk, is I'm raising up a nation the Chaldeans, and they're going to bring justice onto my people. So that's the answer to Habakkuk's prayer. Question, when did God begin raising up the Chaldeans? I mean, he was raising up a nation to serve as his justice arm. Well, the answer is he began raising up the Chaldeans 20 years before the cry of Habakkuk. God began answering Habakkuk's prayer two decades before Habakkuk prayed. Meaning not only did God not delay in answering his prayer, he preempted it. The book ends, very interestingly, the book ends with Habakkuk waiting, trusting, believing that God wasn't not only doing nothing, but weaving a tapestry, p- creating a mosaic in his way and his time. The book ends with Habakkuk waiting on a God, on God who had already been working for 20 years. Midtown, do you believe God knows the end from the beginning, as He says He does? Another question, do you believe that God not only ordains the ends, but the means? And some of the means of God are our prayers. I mean, both things are said of God. If you do then, do you believe then that God is big enough to answer a prayer 20 years before it's even prayed? Of his father, Jesus said, he is always working and he's working until now. He, he, never, he never delays in answering our prayers. He never does. He is always swift to answer our prayers. In fact, he may have begun answering prayers now that you won't utter for decades. But on the flip side, he may, have, he may have already answered prayers uttered already, but that answer won't see its fruition for decades to come or even on this side of eternity. Does that mean that every prayer that we uttered will be answered Yes. Well, no, which leads to a second encouragement. The second encouragement is our heavenly Father never sends us away empty-handed, ever. This truth, this reality has changed my prayer life. See, something I've heard over the years, and you've probably heard it too, in fact, you may have said it to others, is that God always answers our prayers. Sometimes he answers yes, sometimes he answers no, and sometimes he answers wait, right? You heard that before? The only problem with that adage is that God never answers no, ever. If what you mean by no is that he sends us away empty handed, he doesn't, he never does. He always gives us what we need in the moment and every single time. The Father knows the things you need before you ask him so pray, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 8. That he knows what we need should give us great encouragement because as I've said on Wednesday nights the last couple of Wednesdays when we gather for prayer is that we don't always know what we need. But God does. Yeah, we have wants, but we see in this life here in this little pocket... God knows what we need. He knows what we need right now in this moment, and he will always give us what we need every single time. He will never hold back. Always swift, never delay. Always. Therefore, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. You can again read this behind me. He says, let us approach the throne of grace. That's a beautiful expression, by the way. The throne of God is made with grace throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Here's why this truth has changed my life. Oftentimes when we go to God in prayer is we ask for a specific need, a time of need perhaps to be removed or lessened. Nothing wrong with that. And sometimes it's given to us, but not always. But in those times, when things remain the same, that need is not removed, God will always give us grace and mercy to help. Always. And he wants to. And he promises to give it swiftly. He won't delay. There is never a wasted moment of prayer. Never, ever a wasted moment of prayer. He never sends us away empty-handed. A final encouragement to keep us going. Jesus promises justice. The word justice is a key one in this parable. It's a key word if you like to use that verbiage. It's a key word. It comes up again and again. The evil judge is described as unjust. The widow's prayer in verse 3, give me justice against my adversary. Later, Jesus says, will not God grant justice to his elect? And then he says, I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. But then notice what Jesus says at the very end. Last verse, last part of verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, that's Jesus' favorite self-description, When the Son of Man comes, when I return, will he find faith on earth? What's Jesus saying? Well, what Jesus is saying is that justice, God's justice, will find its final culmination at the return of Jesus. Meaning, everything wrong will be made right then. Every act of evil avenged. The cry of the martyrs in the book of Revelation responded to. Our adversary, the work of our adversary against us and God brought to justice. There will be the restoration of all things. That's the, pro- that's the promise. But here is the challenge. Please hear me. I, I, I know you've got stuff you're thinking about this afternoon. Please hear me. The challenge that this parable brings is, do we believe this? Do we believe this? Even though the world is spinning out of control, do we believe this? Even though God seems to be silent, do we believe this? Even though we've been crying out night and day, do we believe this? And if we do, will we persist like the widow so that at Jesus' coming, he will find faith being expressed in our practice of prayer? That's the challenge of this parable. That's the encouragement. That's the challenge. See, as I wrap up, here's the reality the, the problem this parable poses is not with God. He, he will answer when we need and with what we need, every time. The challenge is with us. When, when Jesus returns, will there be anyone who calls out in faith, day and night, that His kingdom would come? Will He find faith on earth? Or will we become so lackadaisical in our faith that people of persistent prayer become extinct? I've been a pastor for 27 years. The hardest thing to raise up in a church... It's not volunteers, community groups, youth ministries, renovations, easy compared to finding people within the church who are fervent in their prayer life. Not even close. That's the challenge of this parable. Will Jesus return and find faith? As being expressed, I'm not asking what you believe or what I believe. I'm asking about your prayer life. I'm asking about my prayer life. As Jesus says just a few chapters earlier, and I'll end with one last text. This text in Luke 12, blessed will be those servants the master finds alert when he comes. Truly I tell you, he he will get ready, have them recline at the table, then come and serve them. It's gonna be great. If he comes in the middle of the night or even near dawn and finds them alert, blessed are those servants. That's the parable. I have a confession to make though as I close. I lied earlier to you. I, I, I told a big fib earlier in this message. I said that we're not the widow in this parable. It's not quite true. We are are obviously to take our cues from her in her example of persistence. So we're to be like her in that way. But in so many ways, we're not her at all. At least not anymore for those of us who are in Christ because we no longer stand poor and destitute anymore, but we are heirs of heavenly wealth and a glorious inheritance. And we no longer stand alone, do we? We have a counselor of all things in us. We have a mediator with us, both who intercede on our behalf. We're not alone. And we no longer stand in a courtroom, do we? Where do we stand? We stand in a throne room. Not only not guilty, declared innocent. No more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we, we don't stand before a judge who doesn't want to hear us, but a sympathetic high priest who invites us to approach him boldly. And ask for whatever we need. And for those reasons, if you just remember this last portion, Midtown, for those reasons, don't give up. Don't give up. Keep on praying. Keep on praying. Let me pray. Join me in prayer. But Father, I confess that it is tempting to give up at times. So help us. Jesus, as our sympathetic high priest, help us in our weaknesses. Help us. And I pray against our evil enemy that likes to Dupe us into thinking that you get tired to hear from us, especially about our weaknesses. Jesus, it's our weaknesses that prompt your sympathy. So help us in our weaknesses. Help us to be a praying people. Help us to be a people of faith expressed in our prayers, individually and corporately. Help us. Stir this in us. May we be a ministry that loves to pray, faithful to pray, and holds on, holds on to what you have said to us in your word and doesn't believe the lies around us, the mocking. Where is the return of your Savior? In contrast, we want to pray, Father, that your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come. Come, please. And I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to mtownchurch.ca.